This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. The group Maine Healthcare Action, affiliated with Maine All Care, is working on a citizen's referendum that would instruct the Maine legislature to enact universal health care. Along with a group of social work students from the University of Maine, they held an online town hall on the issue on April 22nd. With their permission, we're bringing you that discussion today. Tonight's town hall is based on access to health care and Maine Healthcare Action's ballot resolve to bring health care for all to Maine. My name is Emily Harriman and I use she, her pronouns, and I'm going to be providing an overview of what health care coverage looks like in the United States and what we need to do moving forward before handing things over to our panelists so they can discuss their thoughts. So tonight's event is a collaboration of Maine Healthcare Action and the University of Maine's Social Work 463 course. Abby, would you like to provide us a little bit of information about Maine Healthcare Action? Absolutely. Um, so Maine Healthcare Action is a 501c4 nonprofit organization, and we were formed in early 2020 uh, when a group of physicians as well as concerned citizens of Maine or residents um, could no longer tolerate the healthcare system that we had um, and have. So we put together a resolve that would direct the Maine state legislature to not only draft but implement a universal publicly funded healthcare system for the state of Maine. Um, if we are, you know, we have to still, still gather uh, 63,037 valid signatures to get us on the ballot for 2022. So we'll be reaching out to a lot of folks across the state to see if they can get involved. Um, it's very important. You'll hear a lot of stories tonight as to why we need uh, this type of healthcare system moving forward. Um, if you want more information, we'll be typing that in the chat box. Um, you can visit us on Facebook or our webpage, which is MaineHealthCareAction.org. And I'll leave the rest to you, Emily. Great. Thank you so much, Abby. I'd now like to introduce the students from the University of Maine Social Work 463 course. Our group of students is composed of Athena Witham, myself, Lauren Williams, Michaela Falloon, our professor Robin Russell and Sophie Schumacher. I'd like to first start by defining healthcare. Investopedia defines healthcare or what we're gonna call health insurance as a type of insurance coverage that typically pays for medical, surgical, prescription drug, and sometimes dental expenses incurred by the insured. So what's the nature of the problem? Why are we talking about this? According to the Commonwealth Fund, the US health system is a mix of public and private, for-profit and non-profit insurers and healthcare providers. The federal government provides funding for the National Medicare Program for adults age 65 and older, and some people with disabilities, but there's no universal system. The Commonwealth Fund also states that the U.S. spends two times as much as other nations surveyed by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, but has the lowest life expectancy and the highest suicide rate among the 11 nations surveyed. The U.S. has the highest chronic disease burden and an obesity rate that is two times higher than the OECD average. Lastly, compared to peer nations, the U.S. has the highest number of hospitalizations from preventable causes and the highest rate of avoidable deaths. 
So this graphic was in the Times Journal, and it outlines the healthcare spending per nation and life expectancy at birth for six different nations. The U.S. spends much more than any other nation, spending $10,739 per person. Additionally, the life expectancy at birth in the U.S. is much lower at only 78 and a half years. This means America is spending more money on health care, but Americans are living far less. According to the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics fact sheet, clinical experts note that with access to timely and appropriate ambulatory care, patients may be able to prevent illness, control acute episodes, or manage chronic conditions to avoid exacerbating or complicating those conditions. The Association of American Medical Colleges states that America is going to begin to experience a shortage of physicians by 2032 as the general population ages faster than the physician population is growing. I'd now like to briefly go over the history of the problem before handing things over to the panelists to answer some questions. In 1904, the American Medical Association was formed formed the Council on Medical Education to establish licensing standards for physicians. This led to the rise in cost of medical care. In 1908, healthcare was unregulated and health insurance was non-existent. Physicians practiced out of their homes and patients paid the low cost out of pocket. In 1900, there were only 8,000 members in the American Medical Association, but by 1910, there were 70,000. At this same time, European nations began requiring centralized forms of health insurance. In 1929, a group of Dallas school teachers co contracted with Baylor University Hospital to receive up to 21 days of inpatient medical care a year for regular monthly payments of 50 cents. By 1937, 26 plans existed and would eventually form the Blue Cross Network. Following the creation of these plans, physicians began fearing a national insurance plan, which would regulate prices for medical care. For this reason, physicians began to establish their own insurance plans. During the 1940s, the health insurance field boomed. During the 1950s, the cost of hospital care doubled. In 1965, Lyndon Johnson signed the Social Security Act of 1965, which laid the foundations for Medicare and Medicaid. These provided basic hospital insurance and medical insurance to people aged 65 or disabled individuals. In 1972, with the Social Security Act of 1972, Medicare was expanded to cover individuals with disabilities, people with end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis or kidney transplant, and people 65 and older that select Medicare coverage. In 1986, former President Reagan signed the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, which provided temporary continuation of group health coverage for certain employees and their family members at group rates when coverage is lost due to certain qualifying events, such as losing a job. In 1996, President Clinton signed the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, otherwise known as HIPAA, which created national standards to protect patient information from being shared. In 1997, Clinton signed the Children's Health Insurance Program, which provided health coverage to children through Medicaid and CHIP programs. And in 2003, President Bush signed the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act, also known as Medicare Part D, which began providing some coverage for prescription drugs. 
And lastly, the Affordable Care Act is a comprehensive health care reform enacted in March 2010 under President Obama. It had three primary goals, which were to make affordable health care available to more people, expand the Medicaid program to cover all adults with an income below 138% of the federal poverty line, and support innovative medical medical care delivery methods designed to lower the cost of healthcare generally. The ACA provided healthcare to millions and ensured coverage for those with pre-existing conditions. The uninsured population declined by 20 million to an all-time low in 2016, but the number of uninsured people increased by 2.2 million from 2016 to 2019. So where does this leave us? Well, we know that the U.S. has a divided healthcare system and millions of people are left without insurance. Furthermore, COVID-19 has shown the existing racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare and access to healthcare. There's a fear, a severe lack of access to healthcare and a lack of access to insurance in general. Thank you for listening to my explanation, and I'm now delighted to hand it over to Abby to tell the story of our first panelist. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, you covered a lot of information, and I know our healthcare system is so convoluted um, that it's a lot to absorb. I just want to reiterate um, so, main healthcare action, our goal is to get the legislature to actually draft and, and enact the bill. Um, so, it's not yet written. Um, I know we talked, we saw a short video on Medicare for All. Um, we want a system that is specifically designed for the state of Maine, uh, very much like how Canada did um, in the province of Saskatchewan and how they ended up with universal health care. So the guests that we'll be hearing from actually told the story to me. So I will be um, telling their story to the rest of you. Um, we have used a, a different name due to the circumstances around this individual story. So uh, please bear with me. I hope I can do it justice. Um, it, was, it was a lot to take in. Um, okay, so June is a transgender woman in her late 60s. When she was young, she experienced a lot of confusion because she was not born in the body she was meant to be in, and the people around her were not supportive. Her parents were separated, and she resided with her mom. Both home settings had religious and very conservative values. June was kicked out of her mother's home and sent to live with her father at the age of 13, because her mother was appalled that June would wear her sister's clothing or the assumption that June might be gay. This was a short-lived experience as she was kicked out of her father's home at the age of 15, leaving June homeless, depressed, and completely alone. She felt discarded and worthless, and she was just a child. Naturally, she developed a substance use disorder to numb the pain she was going through. When she was a young adult, she had been rushed to the hospital. It was there that she discovered she had contracted hepatitis C from using dirty needles. So at such a young age and no cure at the time, she was told she would only have a 25 to 30 year life expectancy. Throughout her time, she tried to make amends with her family and, and come across the aisle giving up her own identity. So with trying to appease family members, she married a woman and played the role of a doting husband and buried her true self. She worked six to seven days a week for decades to provide a life for her and her partner. 
She bought a home she saved to retire, but she wasn't able to be who she wanted to be, who she was meant to be. She decided to be honest with herself and her partner, only to be rejected and scorned, leaving her once again alone. June pushed on and science pushed on. There was finally an experimental drug to cure hepatitis C, but it was expensive. So expensive that it cost June everything she had worked for. Before she never had health insurance, so she had to pay completely out of pocket. Even though the drug had worked, after living so long with the disease and past drug use mixed with alcohol and smoking, June's health had deteriorated to the point where she was forced into early retirement at the age of 62. Social Security was only providing her $400 a month to live on, and she had to battle the system to qualify for disability, which took over a year to finalize, bringing her total amount to survive on to a measly $800 a month to this day. The only upside to living at such a poverty rate was June was finally able to qualify for main, main care marking the first time in her life that she was medically covered to a certain extent. However, just within the past five years, Maine Care finally started offering the transgender community some coverage for reassignment surgeries, access to hormones, testosterone, et cetera. June wants nothing more than to be in the body she was meant to. She was able to access the hormones the surgery, however, not so much. In order to get the procedure, she would require electrolysis. But unbeknownst to her, that electrolysis was not covered by main, main care because it's considered cosmetic. Even though if the electrolysis was not done prior to the surgery, the patient would be at risk of constant infection and chronic pain. There was no way for her to afford the payments herself living on such a low fixed budget. The chances of June finally getting the procedure were slipping away, and so was her desire to stay in a world that has been so cruel. It was all just too difficult. There's a small silver lining when June turns 65 and doors open. This door is Medicare and a doctor that is part of the LGBTQ community that advocates for her and doesn't cast judgment like she has experienced her whole life. There's finally hope for June because Medicare will cover a procedure. It is not the full procedure, but at this point, June just wants to be able to experience some part of her life living in the body she was meant to be in. However, there's still obstacles she is facing to get there. Her health is not good. She has liver issues, glaucoma, neuropathy, heart conditions, and in order to even get the surgery, she would have to lose 60 pounds. But she is homebound and living in a community that does not accept who she is, presenting another barrier just to lose the weight. She doesn't have the means to afford healthy meals, exercise equipment, or even a coach to help her lose the weight. Every day is a struggle just to keep the lights on, oil in the tank, and a bare minimum of food in the fridge. She spent a lifetime not being able to get the mental health care she needed nor the preventative medical care necessary to live a happy and healthy life. She had all odds stacked against her and kept pushing forward. All June ever wanted was to be able to be herself and to be accepted for who she is. She finally reached a 
point where she could be proud of who she is and honest, but then one medical treatment alone cost her everything she had ever worked for. She paid the price of quality of life just to live. I just want to take a moment because we are living in an epidemic where, you know, the suicide rate of transgender men and women is approximately 47%. An epidemic where medical care in this country has discriminations and biases, which ultimately will lead to unnecessary deaths. Thankfully, there are organizations across the state that have taken it upon themselves to be advocates, to provide resources, and to fight for their communities. Without these organizations, it would be unlikely that June would still be with us here today. I just wanna take a moment to thank June for sharing that very intimate and vulnerable story with me. Through that, um, we really have become quite good friends. And I know that if you know there are people out there, this is not a singular story. Um, there's too many of these stories across the globe and and we need to do better as a society we deserve better june deserves better she deserved better deeming procedures as medicare medically unnecessary and cosmetic in order to save money for the state or for insurance companies is flat out disgusting so thank you june and that is her story you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This online town hall was held on April 22nd. It was organized by Maine Healthcare Action and a group of UMaine social work students. Thank you, Abby, for sharing that story. And thank you, June, for allowing Abby to share that story. Uh, the next panelist that I want to introduce is Linda Homer. She is a small business owner from Southwest Harvard. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Um, my name is Linda and um, I have a pre-existing condition. Um, my sister had stage four metastatic uh, malignant melanoma at age 24. And because of this, I was routinely and extensively checked for skin cancer. At one of these preventative visits, my physician found a suspicious bump. And then she found another and another. So she decided um, to do some excisions. We did some excisions, went back for uh, wider excisions. Um, after these uh, biopsies and, and more additional testing, I learned that I have a genetic mutation called HLRCC, which is hereditary leiomyoma renal cell cancer. And that leaves me with a predis predisposition to a very rare and aggressive form of kidney cancer. There is no cure for this type of kidney cancer. There isn't even a treatment protocol at this point. Therefore, it is extremely important that I get checked yearly to detect for any tumors or changes in cysts in my kidneys. Um, I cannot skip these cancer screenings under any circumstances. My doctors, I've been told my, by my doctors that as soon as these symptoms appear, it will either be extremely difficult to treat or it will just be too late to treat at that point. Um, so at every, um, at every visit, I require an MRI, a CT scan, and 
possibly an ultrasound, depending upon what they see at that visit or how clear, you know, unclear one of the scans may have been. Um, and I will need to be monitored this way for, for the rest of my life. Um, in a good year, I only have to do this once. If they see something, then I have to go back, possibly three months, six months, nine months, it, it just depends. Um, several, several years after my diagnosis, I was at an exam and it was suggested that I have my children genetically tested too, which um, shocked me because I had been going for years and no one ever brought this up and just all of a sudden one day, you know, it, it came to them that we should do this. So I have three children and um, all three of my children have tested positive for this same gene mutation. And um, they too have to go undergo the same testing annually for the rest of their lives. Um, as you can imagine, the constant threat of the repeal of the Affordable Care Act and loss of protecting protections for people with pre-existing conditions, possible lifetime or monetary caps on policies and the ever-increasing cost of medical care left me in constant fear. Without such protections, our lives would change dramatically and quite frankly, put our health in jeopardy. We specifically, my family and I need to have a healthcare plan where we can choose our own physicians. It is close to impossible to find a doctor that has even heard of our condition, let alone who understands what to even look for or what treatment would be. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been to um, a physician and the doctor will say, now, what is it you have? Um, can you tell me about it? And I'll start telling them what I know. And then they'll say, hang on a minute. I want to bring some people in to learn. Um, how can I have confidence in any physician who I'm teaching them about my condition? Um, so for the same reasons, I can't count on someone on the other end of the insurance company making any determinations as to whether this testing is necessary or covered. And I don't have the luxury of skipping any of my diagnostic testing if someone decides that it isn't covered or that they don't think it's necessary, or even if the co-pays and my deductibles are still are too high. I, I must do this regardless. Um, my children, I have a rare genetic condition that is currently only being actively studied and treated in a very few places. And I remember my family has had some histories of cancers and things, but I remember um, Elizabeth Edwards, the wife of Senator John Edwards, speaking once years ago about her cancer treatment and speaking about the shortcomings of the healthcare system in the United States. And she stated how she was very aware of how lucky and privileged she was to be able to go wherever she wanted for care. And she spoke about um, being seen at John, Johns Hopkins because she said, where you go makes all the difference. And it can be the difference between life and death because you need to go to a place where the provider sees your particular disease or condition on a daily basis. And you want to be confident that they have the experience in treating that condition. Um, just the fact that I have to worry about this condition and the possible outcome of my condition and my children 
is scary enough, but adding the fear of possibly not being able to get the needed testing and treatment is, um, it's just beyond comprehension. And, you know, it'll, it'll keep me up at night and I, I try to do the best I can to keep my um, children as comfortable as they can with the, with the condition, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard and it, it's very scary. Um, I'm more afraid for my children than I am for myself. I only found out about this when I was in my early 40s. My children, my youngest was um, 13 when she found out. So this is going to be her life, you know, for the rest of her, her life. Um, so it's clear we need, we need universal health care. We need a system of affordable health care. We need to be able to see what doctors we want to see when we need to see them. And if we, we don't, um, myself or my, my kids will just end up being um, another statistic. And although my story is, has specifics in it, it's, it's not uncommon. There's so many people facing the same type of challenges with their healthcare and their situation. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for sharing that so very real story. Um, my next panelist is Ben Hagopian, and he is a direct primary care physician, and I will hand it over. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben. I'm a family doc down here in Portland. Thank you for having me today. I'll just talk a little bit about my journey in the healthcare system. Uh, uh, June's story and Linda's story are both uh common and sad and uh it's the it's the way this system is set up unfortunately so i can talk a little bit about my story as uh, being as on the on the provider side so um i went to medical school out in cleveland and then i moved to portland to do um, residency training in family medicine at maine medical center um, i kind of always knew i wanted to be a family doctor um, especially from the beginning of medical school, I really wanted to, um, I've always been interested in science and, uh, uh, personal relationships with people. And I've kind of always wanted to be on the front lines. And so primary care really stuck out to me as something I wanted to pursue. Um, the farther I went in the system, the more I got to see how unfortunately broken it was. So, um, you know, I've, I've seen our system focus a lot on the downstream and a lot on the treatment and less on the prevention. And so the farther I went, the more I said, hey, why don't, why don't we try and prevent this? See, can we prevent this cancer? Can we prevent this heart disease? And so that kind of uh, updated my thinking a little bit. Um, after training in Portland, I, I worked up in Oxford County for three years, um, part of the hospital up there. And um, it was good uh, taking care of a rural uh, uh, patient population in Maine was was fantastic, uh, but I got to see how being an employed physician in the healthcare and our healthcare system just led to providing ineffective healthcare. Um, a lot of visits were very rushed. We have all these boxes we have to check. We have lots of quality measures, which don't end up actually, in my opinion, uh, uh, meaning a whole lot. Um, especially when, you know, for example, why is your blood sugar out of control? Well, you can't afford your insulin. So 
So let's let's talk about that. But they don't they don't see that, and that's that's one of the challenges. And I think we've seen some of those in those two stories to, uh, two stories told so far. Lots of talk about how are we going to make more money for the practice to keep the lights on, and and that the answer to that is usually see more patients, not do a better job, and bring costs down. It's see more patients so we make more money for the system, so the system consumes more than it already is. Um, and I got to see a lot of us folks on the front lines and, and I'm biased because I am a primary care doctor. You know, we, we are among the most important in the healthcare field because we are on the front lines and we do things. Um, we can do 90% of the things that people, that most people need. Um, and most of us are unhappy. There's a lot of burnout, a lot of unhappiness, a lot of job switching. Um, I'm not sure if any of you on the call have seen this, but you know, uh, having to change your doctor because they're no longer in the insurance network or the doctor quits and moves to a different system. And then the doctor quits again two years later because they've, they've, they've been unhappy. And so my journey took me about two years ago to something called direct care. And so I had heard about it. I read about it. I said, what is this? This just direct primary care thing. Um, Basically, the way it works is, is um, employers or patients individually go back to um, the presentation we saw earlier from Emily. I think it was 1908 where the patient pays the doctor. And it's this novel idea that we had 100 years ago that went away with the rise of insurance and for-profit health care. And so I read about this and I said, well, how does this work? How do you not take insurance? I kind of was brought up in the idea that insurance equals health care. And then as I educated myself, I, I learned that, well, insurance is definitely, of course, for certain things, it's very, very important, but for other things, it actually makes things more expensive and it puts up barriers. So um, I wasn't sure if this direct care thing was elitist, is this just for rich people? Um, and I've, I've, I've learned over the last couple of years that the foundation of our healthcare system is, is just broken. It's the insurance companies um, like Abby and, and Linda have talked about, insurance companies make all these decisions. Money runs it all. They are entitled, um, based on legislation that currently exists, to a certain percentage of healthcare spend um, to, to, to line their pockets with profit and, and overhead and to pay their workers. Um, and that increases healthcare costs as well. So um, being a direct care doctor, I just work directly with patients. The only people I have to answer to are my patients. And obviously I have to practice good medicine. Um, but, but this way um, for about the cost of a cell phone bill is usually what I tell folks who, you know, who are interested in this type of thing. I can provide high value quality, affordable care to just about everybody. Um, I find it to be very socially, socially just. Um, it brings in people that can't afford insurance. Um, it brings in pe some people who can, it brings in a lot of people who would go without healthcare. Um, some of the stories we've heard already um, in terms of, of being able to access care. I feel like I am, I am filling a niche um, with my practice that um, a lot of folks, they, they either just go without it because it's too expensive in the current system or they, um, or they have such crappy insurance that they can't afford to go see the doctor. Um, and so you know, I provide one of the things I like to do, and, and a lot of us in direct primary care is to provide pricing upfront. So people know what they're getting, they know what it costs, rather than going and consuming this good, and then getting a bill weeks to months later, 
I can tell people up front what things cost. And surprisingly, and I didn't know this when I started this journey, things are actually a lot more expensive usually with insurance. Now, obviously, if you have gender reassignment surgery, chemotherapy, cancer treatments, things like that, but most of the things that people need are actually cheaper just paying with money and not using an insurance card. And this is a kind of something that our healthcare system has pulled over on the American people and Maine people. And I don't want to get on my soapbox too much, but these are the things I've learned to educate myself and, and bring myself back to where, how I want to practice medicine. And so I'm able to focus because I'm not encumbered by rushed visits and creating money for the system and keeping the lights on for this healthcare system. I'm focused on what does my patient need? Not what does the system, you know, or my job tell me I can or should do. What does my what does my patient need? If they need food, I'm going to help them get food. If they need medication, I'm going to help them get medication. If they need surgery, I'm going to research the best surgeon and or the most affordable surgeon that they can go get. And and sometimes that involves a, a plane flight to another state, which is crazy. Um, the the bottom line for me right now is I'm I feel like my patients are happy. I'm taking better care of my patients. I'm happy. And so, so far, so good. Is it perfect? I, I would say no, but um, this is a, this is a, a type of healthcare um, that I like because it, it, it really uh, brings that relationship full circle between the patient and the doctor. And it really, I think it increases access. So it's just another, it's another way to think about our broken system. That's what I got. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ben. And I just have to say, I love your soapbox and it's such a great perspective that you bring to this town hall. So thank you. You're listening to an online town hall on the issue of universal health care in Maine. It was organized by Maine Healthcare Action and a group of UMaine social work students, and it was recorded on April 22nd. And you're listening to it on Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Um, our next panelist is Ronnie Flannery, uh, an organizer from Southern Maine, also used to work, organized for the human, oh, sorry, Healthcare is a Human Right Campaign, and I will hand it over to Ronnie. Hey all. <laughs> Thanks for welcoming me here tonight. Um, yeah, uh, Abby reached out to me, invited me to be here. I'm remembering old days on the Healthcare is a Human Right campaign trail, uh, organizing closely with Maine Healthcare Action back then, um, planting seeds for uh, a just health system that provides coverage to all people. And yeah, it's been a it's been a long fight and a long road. And I think I'm here tonight, you know, trying to fit back into these shoes. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to. To reflect back on, um, yeah, the what was so transformative to me about um, talking to people about uh, health and human rights, and there's this question that we used to ask every person we encountered, um, or rather, three questions, and you don't have to respond, but I think if you uh, maybe just go through them yourself, we used to ask, um, "Do you believe that healthcare is a human right?" Um, and most all people would say, yes, all people deserve access to healthcare, um, regardless of whatever barriers they face. 
Um, the next question was, do you believe that the human right to healthcare is currently protected? Um, and it's no trick question. Almost all people would say no, um, that even though there is an opportunity to access care, um, like Ben was just talking about, and I'm sure others have spoken about too, it, it is a real challenge. Um, and then the third question that we love to ask is, whose job is it to um, protect our human right to healthcare? And um, we get a diversity of answers with that one. Um, some people off the top of their head would say, it's the government's job. It's, um, some folks would say it's the hospital's job, right? Um, because they do, they do wield so much power. Um, but I think the, the, what we always try to get to as, as an organizer is to people to see that it's also, it's, it's, our, it's our job, right? As people coming together, taking action together um, to, to build enough power to create a vision for a new system where all people can flourish. And so it's a little bit, that's a little bit the sentiment that I'm bringing tonight. And um, I think wanting to share that the Southern Maine Worker Center, uh, where I organize full time, it has stayed pretty steady since um, 2016 when we had really um, dug deep on, on the Healthcare as a Human Right campaign. We focused on um, access to dental health care, and we're currently gearing up for another hearing this next Monday. It's like our third bite at the apple, um, trying to kind of chip away at parts of the system that we feel could be fixed. We also have been working to expand um, in coalition with so many people, access to main care for immigrant children and families. And um, these days, we, because of the COVID-19 crisis, have um, kind of embarked on a new project that we're calling the From Crisis to Care project um, that's focusing on the intersection of health and workers' rights, um, just under, like with this, this sense that um, COVID-19 and what we've, what we've been going through this last year reveals maybe better than, than any crisis to date, um, this, the kind of the structural faults uh, or the structural deficiency, the structural violence, right, of um, systems that don't, um, or rather the, the structural violence of uh, the, the health system combined with the worker system, right? And so many people access um, doctors and, and really necessary care um, through their employer. And when they lose their, their job, they also lose health access. Health access, so um, the Crisis to Care platform is kind of our latest iteration of the Healthcare as a Human Right campaign, but it's still very much rooted in um, our human rights principles of equity, accountability, transparency, universality, and participation. Um, from our vantage point, I think we see these human rights principles as offering a really important guiding light for also for what uh, new systems could look like. And I, I think uh, where we stand in really powerful solidarity with everybody who advocates for um, increased access um, to health system is this like feeling like, yeah, there's, there's a vision for something better. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I, I offered that our human rights principles give us a vision for a world in alignment with our human rights principles. Um, and I think, yeah, our organizing model is 
about building that bottom-up power um, in the communities that are most directly impacted that face the most severe um, or, or navigate the most severe disparities um, and who, who can kind of speak from their own experiences and, and uh, give us things that we can resonate on, um, you know, that, that point to not just what the problems are, but what, what a better system could look like. Um, I, yeah, personally too, I, I always envision these things as, uh, I say these things, I mean, oppressive systems or systems that we seek to change or transform. Um, I imagine them as interconnected. Um, and so the way that it feels really painful for someone to be turned away from, um, or to have a health need that goes unmet, um, I think is the same way it feels painful when, um, you know, where we're not able to access jobs or uh, I think of the, the, I think of more overarching things that were oriented against our work, like um, classism, racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia. And, and it's not to, characterize um, the folks who work and work to reshape and, and um, put a lot of labor power into the healthcare system as not to associate any of those things with those people, but to say that we're kind of working backwards from um, a, a default system of commercialized medicine that um, doesn't acknowledge, right? And doesn't take in an equitable approach to um, dismantling those the barriers that people who are multiply marginalized face, and that if we were to provide um, healthcare to the the people who are most impacted by those intersecting systems of oppression, then it would benefit all people. Um, so that's a little bit from me about the work we do at the Worker Center um, and kind of how we orient to the to the campaigns for, for health justice these days. Um, and I, I'm looking too at uh, just some of the, the questions that had been asked um, for panelists and thinking about, um, you know, how COVID-19 um, impacts health spending and access to affordable care, thinking about, um, what our current healthcare system gets right, um, which is something I, I'm not able to speak of to in a very long, but I was, I was sparked by that question about, um, sorry, I was sparked by that question of what does COVID-19 mean for, for health spending and access to affordable care? And I think, yeah, that, that it's really important for us to, um, as we're working towards better health outcomes and on all of our different ways and, and reform, um, that we, sorry, that we that we really grapple with what I think is the the norms of the system itself, which is that there's there's not enough, um, and and that it's that there are too many structural, you know, that that, that we don't have the revenues right to be able to, um, you know, provide um, care to all people, and I, I think it's really important for us to reject that as a norm and to fall back on this truth that I think we all. We can all 
feel or, and, and that we can back up with numbers and data. This was always, this was always the thing that people threw back at me that I didn't have enough data points. Um, and I, I think the, just to offer that we, we live in an abundant world. And um, this is actually a moment when our state has kind of through federal aid, um, just <laughs> more money on the table than we ever have. And um, I think beyond that too, recognizing that it's a system that generates an enormous amount of money that that is that wastes an enormous amount of money, um, and that it's the the problem here isn't that we don't have the resources to provide for all people, it's that we don't have that perspective that's rooted in lived experience of the people most impacted, um, and that we don't have control over how we reshape the systems. And so I think it it does take it is just a closing thought. It takes that that lot that that series of questions of, of recognizing what what is our power what is our what, what are these values that that unite us all um and then whose job is it and it's it's obviously far too big of a lift for any one community or person or advocate or organizer or organization to do on their own it takes everybody pulling in the same direction so in that spirit um thank you again for inviting me to, to share space with you all tonight. And thank you again for the work you all do. And I hope I wasn't rambling too much. It is, it's a bit late. <laughs> no, you're also, perfect. Yeah, thank you. And we appreciate and we thank you for the hard work that you're doing through your organization work. So thank you. Um, I am going to hand it over to Sophie and Lauren. There are some questions. The first question is from Reginald, and they asked, will people on Social Security be able to enroll in this health care? The bill is not yet developed. So the resolve itself directs the legislature to not only draft the bill, but to enact it. And the bill, the outline is that it's a publicly funded system that that offers equitable, affordable comprehensive health care to everyone. We don't know the details yet, but however, if we're successful in gathering the signatures, then um, getting it on the ballot, but also winning at the ballot box, it then opens up the opportunity for the public to give insight as to what this type of plan should look like, whether it be something along the lines of a direct primary care system, whether it's an expanded Medicare for all, whether it's you know some form of publicly funded healthcare, um, that's going to be the opportunity for us to all, you know, march up to the uh, state house and plead our case uh, during the public hearings. So I think that answered another question that was in there as well, Sophie. Great, thank you, Abby. Um, the next question that we have, if, if no one has any more questions, they can just throw them in the chat. But um, do we have a moral obligation to provide healthcare to everyone or is it a right or a privilege? Yeah, I think the moral obligation is is pretty clear, but I, I think it's, it's also, it's from that that sentiment that what, what happens when you don't provide for someone's needs um, and what does it mean to be part of a culture or part of a society, part of a city, part of a state? country um, that turns itself away from the needs of neighbors and needs of others. And so um, to not be able to see, and I wonder about this sometimes, 
who are these people that don't that don't have the empathy for for other folks and um you know it's there's one thing to say okay well the language of human rights is it's challenging and I, I need facts and like i need the argument in front of me um that's my point too from earlier that it's there's no human being i think associated in any of these systems that that doesn't hold these same values, right? It's, it's just to recognize the systemic problem um, and to use empathy and that power that we feel around the shared sentiment that healthcare is a human right um, to connect with each other. And, and that's, that's the only way that we build power enough to be able to right, turn out strong to the state house, to do other kinds of actions together that um, compel the system to change its own common sense. Um, so it's a complicated one. That was probably a little too complicated. It's as simple as saying yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, like, I, I think that was a really great answer. I like the point that you, you know, being a human being, um, it comes, healthcare is about being a human being. So I think that was a really great point. Thank you. So Lauren and Sophie, I, I see another question that came in. I think we'll make it the last question before we close out and uh, invite Grayson. Um, but Claire's asked, uh, why do, so I guess this is directed to Maine Healthcare Action, why we think that Maine politicians are trustworthy to design and implement a healthcare system, part one. And do we think most of them would sabotage it? Um, so, I think we've all been subjected to a lot of the cynicism around politics uh, today, especially after having endured um, the last few years that we have gone through. But um, we absolutely have confidence in our elected officials. You know, if we didn't, they, you know, a majority of them wouldn't be sitting there. I, you know, they're we're not always going to see eye to eye with each and every single politician, but they're also humans as well. You know, there's a lot of politicians that that are sitting there today that, you know, they have their own health struggles. There have been a lot of advocates throughout the years um, fighting for health care reform, but just not being able to to enact it. And I think the missing component has been the public pressure. It's been us coming together and speaking up and giving them the direction and letting them know that this is what needs to happen. Um, a lot of changes in our society have only come from the people coming together, uh, taking the stand and, and demanding, um, you know, the, the rights that they deserve. And so, yes, I do believe that they are very capable of doing so. They've been presenting universal bills for a number of years now. Um, we just need to, to give the extra pressure. Uh, I can't fall into cynicism on this one and um, let's get this done. Thank you. So we have um, our last panelist, uh, Grayson Looker. He's gonna close us out with some next steps. Hey, Athena, thank you. Uh, my name is Grayson Luckner. Is he have pronouns of a representative to the legislature? So I'm one of these politicians that, you know, will be tasked with this uh, once we pass this thing. Uh, I do want to say that, you know, it mean we do have a history of passing things at the ballot box that seemed uh, pretty unfeasible. Um, things like public financing of elections that we have in the state, minimum wage increase, uh, ranked choice voting. Um, at least we got that partially 
there. Uh, so in Maine, we do have this power through the referendum process to enact real change. And I think if politicians listen to one thing, it's their constituents and how people in their districts are voting. So if we can prove through a legis through the referendum process that the people of Maine want this, that they do believe healthcare is a human right, we will give the legislature a mandate to get this done. So that's where I fall. Um, and after listening to all these stories and people just sharing, you know, really uh, heart-wrenching details of, about why healthcare should be a human right and how it is a moral obligation. And, uh, you know, hearing about doctors talk about how broken the system is, this is something we can definitely do. So anyway, uh, one thing we can do is go out there and get signatures and volunteer. It's not rocket science, but we do need to collect 70 or 80,000 signatures by the end of the year. Um, you know, if we got 200 people or so to, get, to each say, you know what, between now and December, I'm going to spend 30 hours of my life collecting signatures. That's a, you know, that's a heavy lift, but you know, that's, we could get it done. So if you're, you're going to see Abby posting some links there, so that's the volunteer link, go ahead and sign up there. Um, you know, we're doing these trainings. Uh, the next one's coming up on Sunday at 3 PM. So you can sign up to get trained about how to collect signatures, the best ways to do it. Again, it's not rocket science, but this is a team. This is an us movement that we're building and it's going to take everybody. So um, just sign up, get involved. We can do this. We can put this on the ballot, um, but only if people get involved. So, um, that's really what it's going to take. If you've never collected a signature in your life, or if you've collected, you know, thousands of signatures, you have something to offer, uh, in this, in these trainings that we're doing. So, um, sign up there. That's a great way to get plugged in. Um, Again, you know, we can do this and it can be done. It's just going to take everybody doing a little bit. So if we start now, we can we can get this on the ballot. We can uh, show the legislature that this is what main people want. And, you know, I just implore you to get involved. Just do a little something. You know, we can't take this anger, you know, at least like when I hear about this injustice, like, that's what I feel is, you know, I, I get angry about it and I can't just stew in that. That's how I got involved in, in what I'm doing today, because I wanted to put that towards something constructive. And, you know, so collecting signatures, that's that's a great way to channel that energy about this injustice. You know, if you have the ability, not everybody has the ability to go get signatures, but it's um something you can do. And honestly, I think it can be a rewarding thing to do as well. You meet a lot of people and have a lot of conversations and I think it's just uh, a really great way to channel that energy. So if you feel like I do that healthcare is a human right and we have an injustice in our society that we, you know, would prefer to send, you know, spend billions of dollars towards CEO profits of health insurance companies rather than providing healthcare as a human right and sign up to get involved. So I'll leave it at that. Thanks for having me. And I, it just could be, you know, I'm just really grateful that we're all uh, doing this together. Thank you everybody for joining us tonight, panelists and participants. We thank you and we hope that you will connect with main healthcare action in the future. Abby, do you have anything else to add? 
Uh, great. Yes. Thank you so much. I want to thank the class uh, that put this together. Um, all of these great students, Athena, Emily, um, Michaela, Sophie, Lauren. Um, also, you know, their wonderful professor, Robin Russell. Um, also, our fantastic speakers this evening, uh, Ronnie, Linda, uh, Dr. Ben, Grayson, um, hearing June's story. Um, you know, we're all in this together, as Grayson had said. Um, so let's let's get this done. Let's take care of, you know, ourselves, our neighbors, the people we don't know, the people we're going to meet along the way. Um, and, and let's stand up to this injustice and and bring real health care to, to everybody. That was an online town hall organized by Maine Healthcare Action and UMaine Social Work students. They're working on a citizen's initiative that would instruct the state legislature to enact universal health care in the state. This event was held on April 22nd. You can learn more about their work at MaineHealthCareAction.org. And this is Maine Current, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. We're here on the first Tuesday of every month at 4 p.m. You can reach us at news at weru.org, and you can find our archive shows at weru.org. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShot coming up next here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org.